We um, are in a series, we're actually concluding a series today, looking at the question, who God is. And the, the guide we've been using for uh, our, as, we, as we explore that question and look for answers is the Apostles' Creed. Uh, the Apostles' Creed is an early confessional statement of the church. Uh, when, you, when you want to, to know what, what, um, what people have said about God, we certainly look to the, the Bible. That is our authoritative source of uh, inspired understanding about who God is. But we also look to other Christians. We, we do this on a regular basis. We just talk to people and say, you know, I was reading the Bible and I'm not sure what it meant by this or that, right? We talk to other Christians and a confessional statement or a creed is a way of doing that. It's a way of talking to other Christians, not just, um, uh, who live near us, but Christians who live around the world and who, uh, live down through the centuries. It's a way of hearing how they understood what the Bible teaches us about God. So we've been guided by a, a creedal statement, a, um, a confessional statement called the Apostles' Creed. But it's pretty long, and so we've been focusing just on the first part of it. We're trying to understand who is God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. And so um, what we've seen so far is looking at the, um, this is that, that first article, the first part of the Apostles' Creed. It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And um, so what we've seen as we've been looking at this is the first place we begin is with the idea of God as Father. So God is Father. And whatever else you hear about God, um, you have to view it through that lens for you to understand what Christianity teaches us about, about God. Because sometimes the message can be a little hard to take. But if you hear it from the perspective that no matter what else, we have to begin with the idea that God is Father, then that makes sometimes those harder messages a little easier to, to bear. So... First, we begin with the idea that God is Father, and then we looked at um, the idea of God as Creator. And um, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you may remember what that what that means is that God made the world good, and God is committed to restoring the world to its initial goodness. And that we have been given roles in that in that work. Um, we are given the role of basically a scarecrow. We're created in God's image, like a scarecrow is is made in a human's image, and we're given a little field to tend. And the idea is that is that we have responsibility to be God's image bearer in that field, the, the field of our lives. So we looked at that, um, God as creator. And then um, after that, we looked at a word that is not there, that it, that it was understood to be there by the people who first wrote the Apostles' Creed. But by the time the Middle Ages came along, people said, it's missing a word. And the ancient Christians would have said, yeah, but that's understood. And they, by the Middle Ages, they said, no, it's really not. And that word is maintainer. That it's not enough to simply create the world. You have to maintain the world too. So we looked at that. And today what we're going to do is we're going to circle back to the word that we jumped over, which is almighty. We're going to look at the idea that God is almighty. Now, the, the Latin word for this, maybe some of you who grew up in church, you might have heard this word before. It's omnipotent. And the idea of omnipotence is you are omni, you're everything or all things. You're omnipotent. You are uh, all-powerful. You have all the power there is. You are omnipotent. So that's the idea of omnipotence. But what does that actually look like? What does it mean to be omnipotent? I think a lot of children have an idea of what it means. Any child who gets into a sandbox, they've got their little bucket and their shovel, and in their mind, um, they can move a little bit of sand, but if they've ever seen earth-moving equipment, then they know what almighty means. Almighty is the same thing, but just scaled up very dramatically. So I can move a bucket of sand in, you know, um, you know, 10 scoops, 
but the earth mover I saw the other day, um, it can move, you know, a great big pile of gravel or whatever in no time at all. So uh, we just kind of scale up from ordinary strength, ordinary might, up to a higher level. And I think that's a, that's a um, uh, very understandable thing that children do. Um, and unfortunately, I think our culture encourages us that because, because nowadays we have the idea of superheroes. I don't know how far back superheroes go, but, but they're all over the place today. You can't go to a movie theater without seeing superheroes. Uh, they're, they're all over the place. This is, uh, Warner Brothers owns a comic book company called DC, and they've got a bunch of, uh, comic book heroes. Superman, Batman, The Flash, Wonder Woman, um, and then two extras. So, um, so, so some some of you may know, um, but there's extras. Um, but th- but one of the things we see is that is that even having filling the theaters with superhero movies isn't enough. We have to fill the movie with superheroes. You've got to have multiple superheroes in a movie these days for it to be interesting. And of course, uh, Disney uh, they own a superhero franchise too. Their their superhero franchise is called the Avengers, and so there's Iron Man and and Thor and some other people, the Hulk back there in the background. But that's not enough. And so if you go to the movies today, you can see a movie called Infinity War because there's approximately an infinite number of superheroes in it. Um, I counted, I saw a poster and I counted, there was 22 superheroes on that poster. So I'm sure they each got one line of dialogue apiece um, in a two-hour movie. But, but we see movies where we have kind of cranked up the idea of power up to a high level and we call that superheroes. And then we say, but what's beyond What's beyond superheroes? It's lots of superheroes. What is Almighty? Almighty is is taking power and then just amping it up, amping it up, amping it up. And ultimately we get to the idea that ours goes to 11. That we have, we have more power. That whatever power we need, there's just more of it. So that's the question we have. What does Almighty mean when it comes to God? Is Almighty just cranking the power up to 11? Is it the idea that anything you can do, I can do better? Is, is that the idea? You know, maybe that's good policy from, from a national defense standpoint. If, if the Russians send uh, bear bombers uh, uh, off the coast of Alaska, maybe the proper thing to do is to send up a flight of F-22s to let them know they're being watched. Maybe that kind of show of, show of force makes sense from a geopolitical Point of view that that there's an appropriate response. Maybe when Syria uses uh, weapons of na- uh, mass destruction to gas its own people, um, it's an appropriate response uh, for uh, the United States and its allies to bomb their bases. Um, but the question is: Is that what Almighty means? Is it just saying whatever you can do, we can do that too? Because. Almighty simply means you take the biggest power there is and say, but I've got more. Is that all we're talking about? Is all we're talking about is opening up a can of World of Hurt and I'm all out of bubblegum? Is that what we're talking about? Is we're talking about the idea of if they put one of yours in the hospital, you put one of theirs in the morgue because that's the Chicago way. Is it the idea that I am the one who knocks? Is that all we mean by Almighty? Shock and awe, release the Kraken. Or is there something else? Because if it is, there's a question. If God has more power, if God has more shock and awe than anything on earth, why is the world a mess? 
Why is the world such a mess? Why do we even have questions about Syria and nerve gas or Russia and bombers? Why is the world a mess if God has more power? You know, at least superheroes do something with their power, right? They go out and they fight crime. The uh, singer um, Wayne, Wayne Watson has a song called If I Were You, and he gives God this advice. He says, if I were you, if I ran this town, the righteous would be sitting pretty and the rotten would come tumbling down. He says, oh, they'd beg and they'd wrangle for a second chance, but I'd say, sorry, boys, but I just can't. Yeah, that's what I'd do if I were you. Why doesn't God use his power like a superhero? If he's got all the power there is, why doesn't he use his power like a superhero to fight crime, to fight evil? Well, maybe this is part of the problem, right? I'm not a superhero, right? I live in that world, but you don't see me going out, dressing up in a costume and fighting crime. I have made an accommodation with the ugliness and the evil in the world. I have said, you know... There's nothing I can do about it. You know, it's too bad. I'm sorry about that. But but no, ultimately, you know, sorry, there's nothing I can do. Too many times I have said, no, no, not me. Somebody else can take care of that. And my guess is none of you dress up in costumes at night and fight crime either. We are caught up in a world of evil. And we've made our peace with it. We've made our accommodation with it. And worse than that, sometimes... It's gotten inside of us. Sometimes we are the evil in the world. And if you're not sure if that includes you, talk to the people around you. Talk to the people who know you best and say, am I always perfect? Or am I sometimes imperfect? Because we know we are part of the evil in the world. Wayne Watson continues this song. He says this. He says, but you know me. I'm just a man of unclean lips and unclean hands. Some of the thoughts I have make me want to run and hide. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. So if God is almighty, why is the world such a messy place? And why are we such messes? So we're going to look at an answer, or a piece of the answer, which comes to us from Exodus 33. Now that's not a place where many people's Bibles flop open to naturally because we've spent so much time there. But um, I think part of the reason for that is the previous chapter is, is Exodus 32. That's the place where Israel gets caught uh, dancing and singing around the golden calf. Moses went up on the mountain uh, to be with God and God was making the Ten Commandments for him. And Israel left down at the base of the mountain. They decide, let's have a celebration. Let's Uh, put all of our gold together, let's melt it, and let's make a golden calf. And the Lord's anger burns hot against Israel. And he tells Moses, he says, get out of here, Um, I'm going to go consume them. And Moses says, no, don't, don't, please don't. Moses intercedes for Israel, and God says, okay. So whatever else, whatever else we think Almighty might mean, it certainly doesn't mean always getting your way, always always um, drawing a line in the sand and never yielding an inch. Whatever else Almighty means, it means that. But the conversation continues. Moses tells um, God, uh, God, God says, okay, well, here's what I'm going to do. Um, <clears throat> he says, 
Get going, you and the people you brought from the land of Egypt. Go up to the land I swore to give to Abraham. And says, go there. I'll give you the land. But I'm just not going with you. I'm going to send my angel with you. And you'll get the land. I'll keep my end of the deal. But I'm just done with you. If I went along with you, you people would drive me crazy. And someday I would slip. And that would be it for you. And Moses says, no. So we pick up the story here in chapter 12. Moses says to the Lord, you've been telling me, take these people, take these people without me to the promised land, but you haven't told me who you will send with me. You told me you're going to send your angels so we can be protected from the people of the land. You're going to, you're going to clear the path for me, but I don't know that angel. I don't know that angel. We don't have a history. You have saved us. You brought us out of slavery in Egypt. I know who you are, but I don't know that angel. So I don't want that deal. It says, if it's true you've looked favorably, let me know your ways so I may understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. Let me deepen the relationship I have with you. Let me understand you better. And the Lord says, okay, all right, I'll go with you. Just like that, the Lord, the Lord folds again. It says, I'll go with you, Moses, and I'll give you rest and everything will be fine for you. And Moses says, well, if you don't go personally with us, don't make us leave this place. He says, what about the people? You're not just going to go with me, are you? Are you going to go with us? Or are you just going to go with me? He says, if you're not going to go with us, don't make us leave this place. Let us stay here in the wilderness. How will anyone know you look favorably on me, on me and on your people, if you don't go with us? So the Lord says, I will indeed do what you have asked, for I have looked favorably on, on you and I know you by name. And I think, you know, if, if our picture of what Almighty means comes to us from superhero movies or, or gangster movies where it's just a ratcheting up of power, if all we think of is that, that we'll put one of theirs in the morgue, this is not that picture. This is a God who is, who has power, but does not draw a line in the sand and says, no, I won't go there. I won't yield. Instead, he negotiates. He backs down. Moses wins the argument. Moses wins one concession after another from God. And then Moses says this, then show me your glorious presence. Oh. And so God, God says, God says who he is. He says, show me your glorious presence. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will call out my name, Yahweh, before you. For I will show mercy to anyone I choose and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. This is a critical verse in understanding who God is. And to us, it sounds capricious. It sounds like God is saying, well, you know, I like you, don't like you. That's not what God is saying. God is saying, I will be gracious to you and nothing can stop me. There is nothing that can stop me from being gracious to you. There is nothing that can stop me from showing mercy to you. I am omnipotent. I am God. Nothing can stop me. Nothing can interfere with me. But he says this, But you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me and live. And then he comes up with this plan. He says, You hide in the cleft in the rock. I will cover you when I pass by. I will cover your face, and then you can look at my back. He says, You can see a part of my glory, but if you looked at all my glory, you would die. God says, I have the power to do anything I want. I can show mercy to anyone I want. I can show grace to anyone I want. What I cannot do 
is do wrong. I cannot let you die from a noble motive. When you wanted to see my glory, I cannot let you look at what you want and die because of it. This is actually a debate among theologians. They say, does God, does God mean he cannot do this or does he mean he will not? I mean, you know, we, we, we ask this question, if God is omnipotent, can he do something that he doesn't want to do? But it boils down to the same thing. You know, theologians can have that debate in the ivory tower about whether God cannot or will not. The point that God is making is I will never do that. You don't ever have to worry about me doing wrong. I will show grace all I want. I will show mercy and nothing can stop me. But I will not, or maybe some theologians say cannot do wrong. So where does that leave us in the world? So the theologians debate about cannot or will not. But where does that leave us in the world? Does that just leave us? You know, we have a crime fighter who says, yeah, but I can't because, you know, then I'd be a, you know, I, I couldn't get into that because because then there'd be collateral damage or something like that. Where does it leave us in the world if God says, I have omnipotent power, but I cannot use it in a way that would do wrong? Well, that's not the end of the story. We know from the story of John, John tells us about Jesus. There was a day Jesus went to the festival in Jerusalem and some Greeks came to him. And they essentially asked the same question that Moses asked. They said, show me your glory. They, they probably did not think of Jesus as God the way that Christians have come to understand Jesus. But they said, this guy is clearly in touch with God. He's got a direct line to God. I want to see God's glory. I can see a reflection of it in this guy. So let us meet Jesus. We want to see at least, we want to see as much of God's glory as we can, as much as is reflected in this man, Jesus. So they say, let us see Jesus. And Jesus' response to them is perfect timing. That was great timing, you guys, because you're about to see my glory. He says, Jesus says, Now is the time, the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone, but its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Jesus says, that they have timed their request perfectly. They are about to see his glory. And what glory is that? It is the glory of him going to the cross and dying and being raised. And he says, that act is is like a grain of wheat that you put it in the ground and it is transformed through that experience and becomes a plant that then produces a harvest of new lives. Jesus says his power is not earthly power. The previous night when Jesus was arrested in the garden, Peter took out his sword, a symbol of earthly power, and said, you know, the revolution is on, you know, viva la revolution, let's fight. And Jesus says, put back your sword. He says, do you not think that I could summon 12 legions of angels? But he says, I've got more power than that. Watch how much power I have. I'm going to die and be raised and produce a harvest of new life. The Apostle Paul put it this way. He says, he says the, sorry, he says the, um, he says God's, God's weakness is, um, perfected in, he says, there's a missing slide. Um, Paul, Paul says in, uh, 2 Corinthians, he says, he prayed to God for relief. He was tormented by a thorn in the flesh. He said three times he prayed to God for relief and each time God said to him, my strength is sufficient 
for you. He said, because Jesus has reconnected you to me, you don't need your strength. You don't need the strength that you are praying for, Paul. My strength is sufficient for you. He says, my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul elsewhere says this. He says, the foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. He says, the strength of God is not the overpowering show of force, not the shock and awe, not the release, the kraken. The strength of God is going to the cross because it produces new life. And Jesus connected us to God so we can have that life too. His life is available to us. So take a moment. Think to yourself, what would it be like? What would it be like in my life if I had access not just to my own power, not just to any earthly power that I could imagine, but an unimaginable celestial power, true omnipotence. If I could bring that into place in my relationships, what would it be like between my children and I, or between my parents and I? What would it be like at work? What would my financial decisions be like if I had access to God's omnipotent power? Because that's what the scriptures teach us, that God's power is not like ours. It is not a power to blast and destroy. It is a power to bring grace and mercy into a situation. What would it be like in your life if you had God's power at work in you? Because it's available through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the power that he made available to us by demonstrating your foolish strength, your strength that is perfected in weakness. We thank you, Lord, for his death and resurrection. And we thank you, Lord, that, that too often we are like, we are like Israel. We, we haven't danced around a golden calf, but Lord, you know all the different ways we have failed to live into the life that you have available to us. So Lord, we thank you that you are not a God who leaves craters where there are bad people, but you are a God who shows grace and mercy and that nothing in the world can stop you from showing grace and mercy. But Lord, we look forward to the world you are preparing. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to tap into your power, your strange divine power, so that we could have your life flowing in us and through us and out of us. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.